Hey folks, Jan Kustala, the Jan Kustala podcast. While I was making the weekly migration from one end of the studio to the other to set up for the podcast, I accidentally hit the poly sustain. Got this C fifth interval in it. Kind of felt like playing. Actually, it's been one of the should uh, I should get to it rather than <laughs> just losing everyone right off the bat um, by warbling away on the bass. Um, quick uh, matter of technical setup here today. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, I really hope you don't get seasick. And if you're only listening on Spotify or Apple Music or something, come over to YouTube and uh, check out what I'm talking about new element to the studio this week the motorized slider and uh i'm gonna just let it run the whole time it's on about six percent or something on one of the slowest settings it has and um it's more of an experiment uh, an experiment because i'm just here on my own and if it doesn't make you seasick uh, i should tr i shall try and start incorporating it a little more in a podcast just to give the video a little bit of interest and motion and a different angle and stuff because it's going to rotate around me and while i'm playing you can get a different view uh technically speaking of what i'm doing i'm using it in production on the main channel a bunch it's nice to get you know to get cool sweeping shots and uh and pans and tracks and stuff like that uh so that's that's the main reason for it but i thought i'd throw it up for the podcast might be really nice if I can get a couple of different camera angles and, you know, for a guest, I have a guest coming in uh, in a couple of days to be on the next episode, which I'm really excited about. So it's kind of a test run for that. And the studio is in such disarray. I just kind of, I'm in that mode of feeling like really on the back foot, like I don't have that moment of, oh, I'm just going to watch Netflix for an hour or something or gonna go and do this thing for myself like entirely for myself like selfishly uh kind of alone somewhere and be self-indulgent with something or even just rest or, or take a break just feels like kind of a little bit on the back foot with all the new sort of pushes to grow the ch main channel and this podcast channel and all the stuff that's going on plus the new album just kind of like just kicked into gear this week started making serious um connections and blocking time out with the band and you know looking at flights you know when you're looking at flights and hotels that it's um that it's going to be a reality and and that it's absolutely happening so yeah excited 
to keep sort of teasing that a little bit because I don't have anything 100% solid in terms of the shows we're going to do down in South America. But right now, uh, it's Chile and Argentina and Montevideo in Uruguay. So hopefully get four or five shows out of that and then in the studio. So that's been kind of kicking into gear, plus the main channel video production, plus the podcast. I haven't even touched the Clips channel in a while, but they're all growing. So I thank you very much for that. If you're not subscribed on YouTube already, um, just hit the subscribe button. It doesn't cost a thing. And hopefully I'm delivering on uh, on the promise of of delivering. <laughs> that's, I guess that's, that's it at the end of the day, right? You guys know what I do. And um, hopefully that is of some interest. And uh, yeah, it's also the, 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 the book production is like kicked into, is in the final stages now for the new Giant Steps book. Um, so that's yet another layer of the week. Uh, plus a federal holiday here in the US on Monday. So, uh, my daughter isn't going to daycare. It's like a whole, you know, the, the hours are just being taken away. As soon as you see a window and you're like, Oh, I can, d-. no, I can't. The hours are just diminishing. So the, the quest to, um, what is it? The, the quest to maximize my time here on earth is still very much, uh, a work in progress. Um, and I did pull up like right before I sat down to tape this i did pull up my youtube studio app on the phone and now has it disappeared again oh it totally disappeared wow look at that um i pulled up the youtube studio app to read some of your comments from last week's um and questions more importantly from last week's episode so i want to get to some questions and and address some comments that's always nice you guys chimed in under the video always appreciate that um in fact i'm not even sure i'm going to play that much that might change but as of right this second i'm not even sure i'm going to play much this week because there's so much stuff to get to and you guys and girls left uh actually who am i kidding just guys but uh it'd be nice if some girls left some questions too we're always open for that um it's going to be more about q a and uh and trying to stay sane, I think, <laughs> as the as the weekend sort of rolls on. Um, lots of good feedback on the book, so I really appreciate that. Uh, it, it has been so fun to do this one, especially when it revolves around giant steps, which is something I've used in my practice routine my entire career, but something I've really shied away from playing live. And I think it's it's overplayed. I've mentioned before that it comes with a lot of baggage, and there's a lot of like expectations attached to it and significance i think wrongly so um so to put that into a practice method and just to see these things popping out of it as i as i work on the book is really fun or everything from walking base to walking in two targeting thirds targeting fifths doing rootless choruses where you barely hit the root once uh, but still outline the changes those those are so dis that's, that's to have so much discipline to do that is i think a really good thing and every time, every time I'm feeling cocky, every time I feel like, oh yeah, man, that shit's pr- pretty happening. I just all I have to do is get into something like that and be reminded of how. Uh, I wonder what was going on. I got the headphones on the wrong way around. Ah. Oh. Wow, amazing that that makes such a difference. Yeah, um, just get into that a little bit rootless, like staying in the same position and walking the whole tune or trying to go rootless, walking the whole time, at least no roots on strong beats, you know, 
delaying things by a quarter note, moving the time back and forth, or do anything like that, especially around a tune like Giant Steps that changes keys uh, so rapidly and has these three um, three key centers which couldn't really be that far, that, that couldn't be any farther apart from each other in the uh, in the circle of fifths. It's a challenge, and it's it's nice to be kicked in the ass by something you like, quote unquote, know already and have worked on for a couple of over two and a half decades. Uh, but it still provides me, and I'm sure it will you, with some inspiration to to grow and to improve your playing. No matter what music you play, like I said last week, there was a pop thing I was doing, and uh, totally drew upon some stuff that I'd been working on in my practice room with Giant Steps. Um, so. Great feedback about that. I really appreciate that. People are excited. Um, and to, to, to see it and to read it and to use it as am I, um, to get it out. Now let's get to some, what's all this crap all over my phone? Let's get to some of your comments and questions from last week because I rarely do this anymore. And I remembered like, oh, there's so much good material in the comments. I should be throwing that in, in the podcast itself. I've got a new mic stand, which is not working the way I want it. Ah, this new road boom arm ah, this is what happens when you set shit up five minutes before you hit the record button okay so gonna stay there whole reason i got this is because it's meant to be new and improved and i'm having a guest on the podcast in a couple of days so i wanted two good booms but so far it's getting about a c minus okay hopefully that improves maybe it's just user error um Let's see. So I'm going to go newest first. There aren't hundreds, and some of them are comments rather than questions, so we should be able to um, crush through them. And there are some really good talking points that I want to get to uh, that sort of caught my eye in this. Um, the most recent comment and question, or yeah, comment is from Alou Folly. Folly? I don't know how you pronounce that. I'm guessing that's French. Um, who says, I would like to see an interview between you and a musician who is also committed in methods that enforce the first-person perspective, i.e. self-reference, like meditation. The reason is that the language and terms that is slash are cultivated by these trained self-observers could be helpful in growing a sensitivity to certain aspects of an effective and orientating mindset while start uh, while starting to get in the flow while practicing slash performing. Interesting. Well, um, I mean, I think your uh, wish is going to be answered <laughs> in the very next episode of the podcast um, because my friend Marcus Reuter is going to be on. I think he is a great person to talk to about that and mindset. And I've I've been listening to his music a lot. I, this is it's very inspirational when you, uh, no matter who you you interview, at least for me, um, because it puts me down this path of research and discovery and. I've just been listening to his music, Marcus's music, uh, for the last few days, nonstop in preparation for this. And he has a vast catalog and a, a very varied catalog of music as a composer and as an artist, which I have a lot of respect for. And I want to ask him a bunch of stuff about that and his mindset and how he goes into projects. And it's amazing. Like I always commit to doing a ton of research before I interview anyone. I really, I don't want to ask questions that can be answered by google or you know looking at somebody's wiki page like uh, those are you know so what got you into the base or the you know, fuck that that is the lamest opening question i think there is like i think the bigger the guest or the bigger the the interview the 
the lamer that question becomes as well. Imagine you've got Paul McCartney on, on, on your podcast or you've got like anyone, Marcus Mills, whoever, whoever it is. And the first question you ask is like, Hey, what got you into the base? I think it's one thing if, if the, if the interviewee references that and part of a story they're telling because you asked a little bit of a deeper question and because of the story they're telling in order to answer that question, they reference something about their roots and their beginning and the first base they saw or all that. But it's so cliche and such a, such a cop out, I think of, of and shows a big, you know, a lot of a lack of research rather. Um, That always annoys the shit out of me when that's the first question I hear from, you know, from an interviewer. So I'm always like, that's in the back of my mind. Like I never want to hear that if I, if I had to listen back to my own podcast, I want to be, I want information right from the beginning. I want to find something new. I want to mine their brains for something that they haven't said before. Um, and maybe get the person to think about something they've maybe done throughout their career, but in a different way and get, you know, a unique take on something. I think that's, that's, that is one's job as an interviewer. So I'm always kicked into high gear when I know I have someone coming on the podcast and doing research. The amazing thing about Marcus was in that was that I really, I hadn't heard, I don't think I'd heard his latest album from 2022. Um, and I listened to the first track, which is almost nine minutes long. And it was, that was enough research right there for at least two hours of conversation. Like that, that really tells you how interesting someone's going to be when you can listen to one nine minute song of theirs and have enough questions for a two hour podcast. That really, uh, that really made me think, Oh wow, this is going to be a fun conversation. And I've already been on his podcast and been a guest and it was a great fun conversation. And I think he's a great interviewer and, uh, he did not open with, Hey, so how did you get into bass? Um, which I very always, I always appreciate that. Um, I did an interview a couple of days ago for, um, for a Brazilian podcast, Ivan Bustamante, and, uh, also a great interviewer. Didn't like go in with the typical stuff. And cause I think he knows you can find that on Google and Wikipedia. If you really want to know when my birthday was or, you know, what my first gig was or something. Um, so yeah, that was an interesting one. And the research is so much fun. I love being in that mode, that podcast interview research mode, because it just opens me up to a whole bunch of stuff I haven't been thinking about. Really, uh, it's like it's like a signal change on a railway track and you're trundling along, like doing your thing and suddenly you're off to the, you know, off to the siding and forced into this whole other other world. And, uh, to, to, and kind of forced to get lost in some new music, which is fantastic. That is always super welcome. So yeah, first comment there, most recent one from yesterday. I think you're going to get your wish. Um, bass improv jam said, I was just thinking how you need to be on SBL. Oh, that's right. I was on the SBL podcast this week. I wasn't, I wasn't on it. We taped a two and a half hour episode with Scott and Ian and. Not sure when that's coming out. They said probably within the next uh, five or six weeks or so. Um, so yeah, uh, you and Phil Man would be a great collab. I actually Phil Man did an interview with me for his um, for his podcast, so that's out there. We already did that. Um, yeah, good feedback about the book. Uh, yeah, and I described the way on last week's episode. I described it. I actually put up 
here's a bit of a tangent to take a left on for a second. I started chopping little clips out of the podcast and using them as shorts on on YouTube. And as you'll see, I've taken, I put five or six up and I've taken them all down. Um, as soon as I did it, I felt like I was back on Instagram. I really felt like I was back on social media. Like I've never used TikTok, but I imagine that's what it feels like posting these vertical short clips. And that was a horrible feeling. And um, yeah, I took them all down. I was like, no, fuck this. Let's stay with the cause. Let's stay with storytelling. Let's stay with filmmaking. Let's stay with high level production for the main channel. Let's stay with as interesting a topics as we can find and guests for the podcast. You know, let's not fuck around with this little interim peripheral distract and distraction of a, of a, of an avenue called shorts. And, um, so yeah, uh, how that, how and why did I get there? Already went off on a tangent. Um, don't remember okay on we go um comments it's crazy because i listen back to the podcast when i'm editing i'm like you idiot how could you not remember your thought it was only 30 seconds ago so shit i've totally forgotten but whatever we got to the shorts thing i didn't like them really felt like shit doing them afterwards so we're back on track um Let's see. Uh, Jonathan Kachia says, Hey, Yannick, I've noticed a good improvement in my, my playing since I started following you on the tube. I guess you mean YouTube and not the London Underground. Um, do you have any thoughts on how to improve right-hand three-finger picking bass technique? No. Um, I don't do it really uh, anymore. I guess here, this, I'm glad I have the bass. I'm not sure if you're talking about like uh, that... Um, Oh, I'm going to get the name wrong. Steve Harris, Iron Maiden, is that who it is? Um, or just any great, uh, like, oh, I can't, see, that's the other thing. I can't do the thing. My, my one fingernail, my Coke nail, as my wife calls it, I keep one fingernail long on the right hand for, uh, for false harmonics. Man, this thing sounds like... What's going on? Okay. Okay, maybe that's going to be good. Um, yeah, I can't do that. Like, it's that galloping thing that a lot of great rock bass players do. I've seen Brian Bella plays the shit out of that technique. And I'm actually not sure if the person asking this question means that technique. Um, I use the thumb and three finger technique. Uh, I have done. I, I, I used it as a kid playing classical guitar and if you're watching on YouTube you can see that going down right now so I play thumb uh, thumb, ring finger, middle and index so instead of going in sequence like one, two, three, four like thumb, one, two, three I go thumb, three, two, one Um, but I do it more for the tremolo effect and in terms of developing any technique it's just repetition at the end of the day it's of course having a good understanding and foundation of the, the, the specifics of that technique you're trying to work on but at the end of the day once you've got that basic uh, understanding of it it's all about repetition and it's about doing it in time and it's about doing it with great sound it's about being able to do it at 
the very low tempos with the um with the with, with the right articulation and then having great relaxation if you need to raise the tempo for any reason so yeah pretty pretty self-explanatory in in those in those terms um in that sense let's see uh raichu ketchum great to hear that you're going to be on the sbl podcast yeah a lot of good feedback about that let's see <laughs> I, I, it was two and a half hours so i don't remember exactly everything we got into i'm sure it'll be cool um I don't know how great it will be uh, from my end, but I'm sure it would be cool. Uh, more content from you available to an even bigger audience, especially since Scott talked a lot about how he really wanted to get you as a guest. Oh, I had no idea that he did. Well, that's that's cool. Um, finally, it's happening. Yes, it happened this week. I will let you all know when the interview is out and live. Man, there's so much shit on in this studio now. There's a real nice hum in the background when I stop speaking. I've really got to figure that out. I might have to switch from the Aguilar, the, the, the Tonehammer 700 down to the 500. 700 seems, the fan seems to come on a little too quickly for my liking. 500 tends to tick over um, without that. Interesting. Um, uh, let's see. I was wondering if you could do a beginner's intermediate advanced bass guitar video and how each guitar changes per category. Yes, I saw this comment a few days ago when it was posted by C Todd122. Really, I think that's a great idea for the main channel. And it'd be nice to get something really cheap. I want to do a couple of things actually. I want to do, um, cheapest or, or the best rig under a thousand dollars. Um, I have a sneaky suspicion it might be, uh, a squire for 270 bucks and maybe one of those Ampeg rocket bases or something. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe a cheap Yamaha for under 500 bucks. Not sure, but definitely I want to do that. That would be actually a nice challenge. It sounds like a kind of a clickbaity title. The best base rig under $1,000. You expect it to be on the Sweetwater's channel or something like pedaling a bunch of gear, but I'd actually like to do it from the standpoint of, Hey, can I get this piece of shit to sound good? You know, I am a strong believer in the instrument being, uh, being sort of really secondary, but like your sound and everything and your total, your vibe is not, uh, dependent on how much money you spend on equipment as much as a lot of companies would like to <laughs> have you believe that. I don't think it is. And I think, should I, throw myself under the bus i i think i could probably get it to sound pretty decent at least sound like myself which is i think the most important thing good or decent or whatever is all subjective so at least be able to sound like myself and get through a professional gig on an amp and a bass like a full rig maybe even throw a pedal in there or something for under a thousand dollars which in 2023 is um not that much money actually um i'm i, I really uh I don't do this this very often because it's too shocking to me. But when I actually add up what the gear I take to a gig costs, it's astounding. Um, I mean, to, to the point I'd never be able to afford it if I had to pay for it all. I'm very, very fortunate that I'm at a place in my career where I do get a bunch of this stuff for free. Um, but if I had to pay full price for everything, and sometimes some stuff I get a discount on, some stuff I, I buy. You know, the, the, the boutique pedal thing is... Um, Actually, shit, it's one of the most expensive elements of it all. And that's that, you know, rarely do you get stuff like that 
for free. So I, I do I do spend some considerable amount of bread on, on some of it. But yeah, you're putting like you know, I'll go to the baked potato to play a gig that play that pays a few hundred bucks and I'm putting twenty grand's worth of gear in the back of my car. I know that's a classic like you know, it's a classic meme or a classic saying like musicians having way too much gear and really expensive gear. But that really is the point that it's got to now. And it's kind of shocking to me sometimes. Um, so that's I, even more so I want to do the challenge of can I make a Squire Jaguar or something for the 250 bucks in a little single eight inch or 10 inch or whatever it might be. I don't even know what they are. The little Ampeg cheap bass amps a little fender bass amp or something can i make that sound good enough and if i was recording for instance and didn't need an amp could i do the whole rig and even have something as high end as an hx stomp for 600 bucks and the bass and have like a recording setup which is an interface it's pedals it's effects it's all kinds of stuff uh for under a thousand bucks and really get a lot of my sounds out of it i have a sneaky suspicion i can i think it'd be a very interesting exercise plus the this uh this idea of doing all the basses and what changes in an instrument you know maybe that'll be a follow-on from the rig under a thousand bucks because things do change in an instrument of course they do and there are there are differences but the differences the, the increase in gains uh gets less and less um, the higher up you get, you know, once you get over the two, three thousand dollar mark for an instrument, uh, you're really looking at some very small gains, like single digit percentages uh, for for a lot of things. You know, the difference in you, you and you, at some point you just cap out, like you can't spend any more money on pickups or electronics. Really, like there are certain things that you just can't. You get to a certain level that that. It, that's just what it is. So when you get up into the ten or fifteen thousand dollar boutique instrument, like crazy range or higher, you know, I did that video and, and talked about the Federas a little bit and the Anthony Jackson bass is thirty five thousand dollars. You're talking about something very, very unique and very specific, and and of course very special, and handcrafted and all of those things. And and those things matter differently to different people. So yeah. You know, you can buy a a a, a G Shock watch, right? A really for fifty, but I guessing for fifty bucks. Oh, you can buy a Casio. You can buy a Swatch for whatever, for for next to no money, and it it tells you the fucking time, and it does it really accurately. Or you can spend a a million five on uh RM thirty two, a Richard Mille tourbillon or something, and 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 spend that amount of money on a, on something that essentially does exactly the same thing. Um, it, it's arguably more difficult to tell the time on some of those Richard Mille watches than it is on a Swatch, which is ironic. But that means something to those people who have the means to buy them and are collectors and appreciate the art and the art of horology and complications and all of those things. So I think that's exactly the same with, with instruments. But to get a job done, to be a professional bass player, I think you don't have to spend a fortune. And I'm, I'll be very, um, I'm, I'm actually very excited to get into that and, and prove that and show how little the difference, differences can be. Um, and then, yeah, and, and let's show some big differences as well. Not just the little incremental ones, but yes, let's show the difference between a $250 Squire and a $10,000, you know, custom boutique instrument. Um, 
you're definitely going to notice some stuff. You know, there's going to be some significantly less rough edges on the handmade, you know, master-built instrument with the you know, 13 piece through neck and the exotic woods and all of those things that the man hours, the, the, the labor that goes into it and the finishing and the, the, you know, the, the, the craftsmanship that goes into it. Yes. Those are the, those are the differences. And they arguably hold their value a little better. They could be viewed as an investment if you, if you wanted to sell them on. Um, whereas a squire is, is you're never going to get more than you pay for it. That's for sure. Unless some super famous bass player starts playing them right after you buy one, and the and the price goes through the through the ceiling, which is very unlikely. Um, so let's get to some more comments here from last week. Um, bah, 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 bah. Some great comments and, and and stuff. I just want to get try and get to the questions as much as I can. Um, bah, 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 Yeah, Queen Elizabeth Hall, definitely. Um, thank you for the response on that from last week. Um, definitely looking into a bunch of really nice venues in London for the big show. Um, let's see. Okay, we got questions here. Great. Retired Elves. <laughs> what, a, what a screen name. Question one. I've transcribed so many solos from many different artists, mainly from horn and piano players, playing Giant Steps. When I say transcribe, I mean I learned the solo note for note but I no longer write out the solos. My issue is once I learn a new solo over these same changes, the older solos are gone. I can't recall anything or pull it up or mix up the different solos to make new music. Will your book help with this? Interesting. There's There are two questions here, so let me crank out the second question. I just purchased a Helix Stomp XL this week based on your video recommendations. I have never used effects before ever. I'm just a bedroom player. I like your tone on this podcast. Are you using? Are you just using reverb and or delay? Is it a standard setting on the Helix? If yes, what are the settings, please? Kind regards, John. John, I think I actually gave you a quick reply in the comments there, but it's great to get this one out in the podcast. That's why I'm reading these out because great to share the, these answers with more people. Um, yeah, the really simply the the the. What I'm using here in the podcast, what I generally have in my practice patch is the dynamic hall reverb. So here's clean or dry rather, and here's the reverb. It's got a pretty long tail on it, but it's not super aggressive. I still have plenty of attack. So I don't lose the definition when I'm when I'm comping and when I'm soloing. You still hear the attack of the note. So yes, that's the dynamic hall. Uh, I use it in stereo quite a bit in the bigger setup. Really beautiful sounding reverb. Um, not oh, hang on a sec. Unbelievable. That's what it was. Oh, at least I can cut that out. It wasn't a hum in the background. It was something in the poly sustain that I hadn't erased. Great. Well, luckily. None of you will have to hear that because I can mute that in the mix. Fantastic. Um, and to get to the first question about transcribing the solos, yeah, uh, you got to write the stuff down. Um, yes, my book will help with that. Actually, <laughs> God, it's so dry here in California. 
drives me nuts sometimes, really kills my throat. Um, yeah, tr- transcription and writing it down is essential to get over this issue you're facing. Uh, uh, the, the issue being that once you move on to another solo, you forget all the stuff on the first solo that you transcribed. But regardless of how many solos you transcribe over the same tune, your memory, n- none of us have the memory. Okay, maybe one in every billion people have that kind of savant-like memory. Uh, but most of us, let's say, for the most part, have have no capacity to remember that amount of information. Actually, I'm sitting quite close to a bunch of transcription books right here. And if I just grab one right off the top, uh, we've got George Benson, Days of Wine and Roses. We've got Slam Stewart. Um, this is just like Oscar Peterson live, 1964, Denmark, Green Dolphin Street. I mean, just I I could never remember. I can't remember even this. I, I can't remember that I actually even transcribed the Oscar Peterson solo. Never mind the notes that were in it. And that was, I did that 15 years ago. Uh, Bill Evans, some live thing in 67. Um, what else we got in here? Tons of stuff. Bass lines and Tosin Abassi guitar lick. Adam Rogers timeline. Ronnie Scott's the year 2000. And I transcribed that in April, April 3rd, 2020. And I mean, this, I'll try and hold it up. I don't know if it will focus in quick enough, but. That's a lot of information right there. Just to prove I'm not bullshitting you here. I'm, I'm holding the transcription up to the camera. You should see up there in the top left-hand corner, the day April, what did I say, April 3rd, 2020. That was early lockdown, early COVID uh, transcription situation getting in there. I could never remember that. Um, Shy Maestro, Mystery and Illusions. I'm guessing that was before because it comes earlier in the book. Cannibal Adley, Lisa, Take 8 from quartet plus i like i said i couldn't even remember the solos i've transcribed let alone each of the solos themselves so yes you absolutely if you want to like if the goal is to remember and to have more importantly to have inspiration when you when you're stuck for something to work on i think that's the most important thing is that you want something to go back to and be like whoa yeah i remember holy shit oscar peterson live in blah 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 on this day live great let's get back into that that's super inspirational there was a reason i went to that solo to transcribe it in the first place so if it happened 15 years ago more than likely i've forgotten about that moment and this gives me something to like really like hammer back into and remind myself of why i was inspired by it and probably get something new out of it and at at the time when i'm transcribing an entire solo i'm you know i'm doing that if i have the time of course i'm doing that because i want to look at the overall shape of it i want to look at the arc i want to look at the soloist versus the rhythm section, the comping, the chords, the reharmonizations, how the soloist created tension, motific development, like all of these elements when I'm transcribing an entire solo. But even when I'm doing the entire thing, I'm, I'm normally taking like a two or three things out of it that I really move around the instrument. Even if I learn the whole thing and play it a bunch of times and totally get the whole solo under my fingers, I am always taking a couple of phrases out of it that really popped that really drew probably the the couple of phrases that drew me to the solo in the first place and or or maybe it was the time and the sound or or the recording or whatever there was a bunch of reasons why i go in there and uh and transcribe something um but 
principally, uh, uh, primarily rather, because I don't understand something that's going on, or it's something that I can't immediately immediately identify, and I need to go like dig deeper and and and, and really check in check in to see what's happening. So, um, in in that sense, when I go back to a, a thing that I did all those things with already. When I go back to it a second time, especially if it's like 15 years to 10 years later or even a year later, I'm probably going to find some different elements of that solo that I want to take out of it from from the ones I did before, which is great. It's just an, an endless source of inspiration. And um, when the camera pans back over, you'll see this. This is just like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. There are thirteen books just sitting right here. Those are thirteen of probably a hundred of these transcription books, of these manuscript books, just full of solos. If I open another one right here, let's see what we got. Oh, this is actually a newer one. Oh yeah, okay, this is a newer one. So look at that. Pap, Giant Steps, Knitting Factory, nineteen ninety seven. Um Randy Brecker, that's all there is to it. Uh, I transcribed that on July 15th, 2022. That's something I've been listening to from day one. That's Return of the Brecker Brothers from 1992. And 30 years later, after the album comes out, I'm transcribing Randy's Bre- Randy Brecker's solo on that. Um, what else we got in here? There's a bunch of stuff. Twiz. Oh, I've got Benny Greb uh, transcriptions from, well, so this is an older book, but a newer book as well. Greb Kistra. I've got like cheat sheets for Benny Greb gig, the sort of rhythmic outline for Greb Kustra. Yeah, it's always full of stuff like that. But yeah, that's just 13 books sitting right here on the side of, like I said, at least 100 or more at this point. Um, not to mention the fact that I'm now digitizing them and I'm doing them in Sibelius, like direct you know, saving the saving the time because eventually I want to get them all in one place and have sort of an archive and a collection of all the things that basically made up my vocabulary over my life. I think that would be a nice document to have or something nice to document anyway, whether that's something that's released publicly or not. It'd be nice to have and just be able to, like I said, reminisce, have it all in the same place. Imagine there's like 13 books here that I don't really remember which solos in where, even though I remember there were some big solos in my career that I transcribed that were important to me. I don't know exactly which one is where. Um, so I, you know, it'd be nice to have them digitized, alphabetized, searchable, even, you know, when I want to go like, oh yeah, that one Pat Metheny lick from We Live Here, from, you know, you know i I want to be able to go search that and find my transcription and and dig back into it so yes i think it's very important for a lot of reasons to write the stuff down um so i highly encourage that and the the question was is the book going to help with that well yeah um two things here one thing i wrote a book uh bass players guide to sight reading um all books, by the way, are available below. The link below in the description of the video. And that book, although it's called Bass Player's Guide to Sight Reading, because I had to explain notation uh, in order to to teach the the, the method of, of just reading music, never mind sight reading, but just reading and understanding music and rhythm, it actually I, I maybe should have called it Bass Player's Guide to Reading and Writing uh, in terms of music because it does really teach you how like the basics of standard notation note lengths and rhythms and pitches and where they are on the stave. Like I highly recommend staying as far away from t- bass tab as you possibly can. It's utterly useless. And if you don't know 
anything about standard notation and you want to start writing things down, don't do it in base tab. Learn standard notation instead of base tab because it will give you access to just tons more music. Um, I think that's the thing about reading as well. We will get to why the Giant Steps book is going to help in a second. I'm not going to forget that. That is fresh in my mind. Um, but I think it's worth mentioning that um, although the book is Bass Player's Guide to Sight Reading, although sight reading is a thing you hear, like, oh, can you sight read? Really, it's about can you read? Like, can you read music? Yes, sight reading is is key uh, for certain gigs and for certain situations. Like if I have to go into a situation where there are – Maybe it's a house band, uh, multiple artists, uh, everyone's bringing their charts, for instance. If it's that kind of gig, again, reading. I know those gigs happen where it's just you're handed some music ahead of time and you have to learn it all. That's a completely different skill. But in the context of reading, I think it's super important just to be able to have that uh, that ability to understand standard notation as to uh, uh, and how that relates to the instrument. Um, yes, sight reading, super useful, like I said, if you are in those sort of intense situations where maybe you're on a movie soundtrack or you're, you know, there, was, there are plenty of scenarios. Coming from the UK, there were a lot of reading gigs in London, or, or at least I ended up doing them because I could read very well. So maybe they weren't a lot, but I was definitely, I, I definitely experienced a lot of them because I could read um, and because I could sight read. Um, people weren't afraid to throw things up there for me at the last minute and be like, hey, we're doing this because I would just be great. Okay, here we go. Count it off. Um, but really, I think the most important thing with all of that is just to be able to read, not sight read. You know, that, everything doesn't have to be under pressure, but just to understand standard notation, to be able to know where all the notes are on the instrument and the stave um, is a really useful skill to have. It just opens up, it opens a lot more doors to a lot more music um, that you may otherwise have missed out on. So I always recommend, you know, whether you learn to sight read or not, okay, but I always recommend learning to read. And Bass Player's Guide to Sight Reading really does that and to, and helps you sight read. And also a byproduct of that is it will help with your standard notation because I do explain basically all of it <laughs> in the beginning of the book to make sure you have a foundation of the, of the fundamentals. So, yeah, and will the Giant Steps book help you with that yes in its own way it definitely will because i'm doing something in this book that i've never done before in terms of including full transcriptions full transcriptions of great soloists playing over giant steps and these are not i, I can't you know as much as i would love because i love these solos as much as i would love to include like Pat Metheny's 99-2000 version and the Trio Live version and Kenny Garrett on, is it Black Hope? It's definitely on um, Pursuance. Like, I'd love to, of course, John Coltrane's version, Michael Brecker, Bob Mincer. Uh, there's a Maria Schneider version. I'd love to include, like, commercially released versions because I think those solos are incredible. They've been a huge part of my education um and my understanding of improvisation and of jazz um but that i you know it would cost an absolute fortune to get the rights to do all of that and rightly so you know those people deserve commercially released music blah 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 blah. all the intellectual property rights i totally understand all that what i can do though is um use some bootlegs some unreleased totally 
weird recorded on a tape player. Like I even recorded one of them. I have an unbelievable one of Chris Potter when he's like 27 years old or something, uh, playing on this totally random gig. It was the first month I moved to New York, had the tape machine with me and, uh, and managed to get this, this solo of him playing giant steps. So I'm transcribing the whole thing. It's totally un- uncommercial. Nobody's losing any money as a result of i'm not screwing anyone over as a result of including it in the book so i'm going to do a few things like that i think there's a a pat one i'm doing i'm going to do some walking bass but yeah for the first time in a book i'm including full transcriptions of of uh, solos over tunes so and then kind of working backwards from those solos to make exercises out of them to build your vocabulary to build your repertoire to build your practice routine and because that's how i do it you know, when I was talking earlier on about transcribing a whole solo and then taking two or three things out of it, those two or three things are what I'm moving around the instrument, what I'm transposing to other keys, what I'm using as little fragments of vocabulary to build my uh, to build my understanding of the language. So that's how this book is going down, and that's how I think it is so much more than just Giant Steps. Giant Steps is super recognizable and easily marketable, um, very well-known and widely understood concept. Um, whether it's widely accessible yet or whether people actually can do it, everyone kind of knows about it. So my my concept here is to like, you know, blow all the myths away about it and uh, and really get to sort of opening the doors and being like, hey, you know what? It's just two five ones, cats. And uh, if it's too fast for you and the harmonic uh, rhythm is just moving too quick, slow it down. You know, I'm making backing tracks for it. So there's like super slow, groovy. It's not all ting de ling de ling de ling de ling de ling It's not all burning 320 BPM straight ahead swing. It doesn't have to be that at all. You want to do that? Fantastic. Go do that on your own time. Get a drama with some great time and go work on your upper tempo 251 multiple key change tunes great um but the thing that's going to make you able to do any of that if you ever desire is working on it slow and working on it sort of repetitively i want to say methodically but methodically doesn't really uh i don't think that word lends itself to creativity so much um but yeah i think repetitively when you find the moments that are the best for you, when you find those moments to go, whoa, I love that about this tune. You know, everything that's in these books sitting right here, my transcription books, there's at least one or two, probably three or four things where I've gone, I love this about this tune. That's why I'm going to spend all this time transcribing it and learning it and repeating and repeating and repeating and repeating hundreds, if not thousands of times, some of these solos and these lines and these ideas and these pieces of vocabulary. So... Don't underestimate the value of repetition. Is uh, it's why I'm where I am right now. That's basically it. Um, let's see. Levent, well, Levente Fazeca says, uh, "Love the new background lighting." Oh wow, yeah, okay. I sort of dialed that in. As the camera sweeps here, um, you'll see to my right, uh, two of the sets of pedal shelves have the lighting. I still haven't diffused them yet, but I'm working on it. And uh, they definitely, when the camera's set up the right way, it's not the best right now on the slider, but when it's set up the right way, they do actually pop quite nicely. And uh, they make for a good backdrop for, for scenes. So yeah, 
But as you'll see this other shelf creeping into view right now, I have books on the bottom of it and then pedals on the top. No lights yet. So I think I'm going to take out the books, put pedals on both, and then I'll have one, two, three, four, five, six shelves of pedals as a possible backdrop, which would be kind of cool. Swap them out. Do all kinds of stuff with it. So uh, also love the fact you didn't sell out to the YouTube algorithm. No pro bass player reacts or pro bassist tries gymnastics or world's best bassist's insane pedal collection <laughs> and no EDC setup tours or fret wraps. If you reach that 100K, it's going to be well-earned sharp end. Oh, so this is someone who was, uh, okay. They know they're always operating at the sharp end of the stick line. That was one of my, I, I actually, I don't know if that was, if I don't know if I came up with that, but I definitely used it and a bunch of people had a laugh and then d- didn't let me forget it that I'd said it. Um, oh, and here's another quote. I just want to die and not have sucked. That's a quote attributed to, to me in some random stream. And this cat was apparently taking notes. So yeah, no pro bass player reacts. I, it's weird, right? Like, I've studied so much of the top YouTubers over the past couple of months, just trying to figure out like what translates to what I want to do and the information I want to impart and how, just how I want to go about my sort of online persona, shall we say. And the most popular channels, I look at Mr. Beast, for instance, I keep talking about him, but he's a good example because he's so successful and does so many varied things. He has a reaction channel, a whole channel dedicated to reactions with probably 20 or 30 million subscribers. And it is kind of, I find myself watching it way more than I should. Um, but it's like so mainstream. It's such a wide net that they cast with that. And if I was reacting to stuff, I'm not going to react to like, you know, uh, now I'm trying now I'm stuck see that that's the other thing it's so transient like I don't remember any of it I know that there's a Mr. Beast reacts channel but I'm so hard pushed in the moment right now having watched hours of that shit to come up with one thing that they reacted to and they're all kind of silly you know and if I were to do that in the base world what I'm reacting to a bunch of what am I reacting to I'm reacting to a bunch of shit I probably don't like because <laughs> if it's stupid, I don't like it. Um, and that would just be kind of negative and douchey. So I think I've grown up a little bit um, and I'll probably stick away from the reacts videos, uh, stay away from the reacts videos. Pro basis tries gymnastics. Yeah, I think I replied to this on the, on the YouTube channel. Yeah, if I tried gymnastics, it would be because it was helping my music somehow. And you better believe I'd be out there on the mat with the best coach and it would all be, you know, geared towards posture or some, you know, helping me be a better musician. So, yeah, probably not going to do gymnastics. Um, yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, Walt P says, love this push, dude. The content has been amazing and the videos have been looking great. Thank you very much. Um, I'm spending a lot of time wrestling with jumping into the jazz world as an electric player. Learning to read music and having good material on my desk ready to go has been a game changer for, uh, for practice. I love iconic lines. Oh, cool. And 251 jazz vocabulary books. Awesome. Well, thank you for checking those out. Um, I would love to learn more about what your practice to performance process could look like for jazz walking, especially reflecting back to an intermediate level. Some things are table stakes, memorizing the 
the changes and notes, but how do you get out of thinking on this chord I'll play one five two three pattern and next time I'll play one two three five etc. Well, the quick answer to your question is that you shouldn't be thinking about any of that shit anyway. Like you shouldn't be thinking about patterns, you shouldn't be thinking about chord tones or harmony or notes or anything because you should have listened to enough and transcribed enough and repeated enough uh, walking bass lines or any element of your vocabulary that you're trying to improve. Um, you should have done that enough so that it's natural, so you don't have to think about it. So if you're still in the thinking stage, uh, you probably want to dial down your thinking and dial up your transcription and your immersion in the language. If you want to learn how to walk really well, like you have to listen to... There are so many, literally hundreds of legends, but let's say uh, say the ones I listen to that I can highly recommend would be Oscar Pettiford, Slam Stewart, Jimmy Blanton, Ron Carter, Paul Chambers, uh, Christian McBride, Larry Grenadier, John Patitucci, um, Gary Peacock, uh, Scott LaFaro, uh, Leroy Vinegar, uh, Reginald Veal, uh, I'm, uh, 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 oh man, I'm, I'm, I'm skating on so many people, like really great people. Um, I'm skating on some friends as well, I know, which is bad. <laughs> oh, Seanette Moffat, I listen to a lot of Seanette Moffat, um, from all those, uh, those um those Marsalis records and then uh Bob Hurst. I mean there are so many. And you have to listen to all of those, you know, like here's the thing. Can you name twenty legendary upright bass players? If you can't, there's a good chance you haven't listened to enough upright bass. Definitely not enough to be fluent to the point where you don't have to think about it. I'm not trying to be a dick. I'm not trying to like call you out. I'm just saying that is basically the bottom line. That's where you have to be at. There's no way around it. The, the, there is no other answer. There is one for this for, for assimilation of vocabulary. There is a one size fits all. It goes across. I think all language, spoken and musical. Um. And the, I think the biggest component, never, regardless of like each discipline, shall we say, um, perhaps having certain things that have to be taught in a certain way and a certain lineage and this, that, and the other, the overarching, uh, um, sort of like fundamental is listening. I think that is maybe one of the most universally accepted uh aspects of of learning when it comes to language is listening and of course through listening that that involves immersion and it involves repetition and you know i I always come back to um if you're going to learn a language you're going to learn french and you live in oregon or somewhere or you live in i don't know panama where they don't speak you live somewhere where they don't speak french you want to speak french you can learn it from a book you can learn it from a tape and you're going to sound like you learned it from a book or a tape you're going to stutter you're going to think way too much you're going to think about grammar and you're going to think about sentence structure and you're going to think about vocabulary because it's not natural because you haven't heard someone say um Bonjour, ça va. Like, like you haven't heard them say that over and over and over and over and over again, you know, thirty times a day for a year. 
Like just go out and walk around Paris. You are going to hear that over and over and over again to the point where you, you can never unknow it. It will be so natural to you. But if you read it in a book every day, it's like, oh yeah, uh, bonjour, comment ça va? But you walk into a store and they don't say comment ça va? They say bonjour, ça va? It's that you get not only the, um, the repetition and the immersion and the uh, exposure, but you get the the reality as well. You don't get the theory. You know, you you get the local the local version, and the local version is always way better than you know than the uh, than the commercial one. Um, and that's no different, I think, for for walking bass. You know, I can sit here and tell you that you need to know chord tones and you need to, you know, have a feel for the form and understand form and understand chromatic approach notes from above and from below and understand a few, you know, if if you were to analyze walking bass, you will understand that, you know, there are two or three things that sound really shit if people do them and basically the great players who play walking lines don't do them so okay there are a few kind of rules if you like but i can tell you that or you can go out and listen and just transcribe a thousand choruses of paul chambers and discover it for yourself and not only discover it for yourself but make it such a natural element of your playing that you never have to think of, about it as long as you live orlando le fleming there's another one there's a friend who's a ridiculous bass player really really great bass player ruben rogers like um, there, I mean, there are just so many. Eric Rivas, like the the younger guys. And I'm still I'm talking about people almost probably fifty at this point, and Orlando's my age, so we're not talking about young young guys. Um, but yeah, just ask yourself: Can you name twenty legends? You know, and if you can't, oops, it's uh, it's time. Let's see if I can do it right now. I already named a bunch, so let's. Uh, what I say, Oscar Pettiford, Jimmy Blanton, um, Ray Brown. Isn't uh, um, now I'm going to get really stuck, right? Because <laughs> uh, and I'm going to try not to repeat anyone. So Ray Brown and Ron Carter, and I think Reginald Veal's a legend. I think Rufus Reed. I think Jimmy Garrison. Um, I think Scott Lafaro, Christian McBride, Larry Grenadier. That's ten. Um, now we got to get into. Wow, it's so hard. It's so hard not to repeat them. I should just go through the history. Uh, <clears throat> I've really laid myself out on the line here. And why am I drawing a blank? I was so harsh about can you name twenty? And I have I've already named twenty, but why can't I do it in the in the moment? That's what bothers me. That I can't do it like right in the moment. What about Reggie Workman? Leroy Vinegar. Um and uh, why did I screw myself so bad? Literally, I think literally in this book right here, I have transcriptions. Oh, I miss Slam Stewart, idiot. Paul Chambers, Charlie Hayden, Larry Grenadier. Oh, yeah, I know. Sorry. <laughs> I'm literally looking at tons of bass transcriptions one after the other. Uh, John Patitucci. Uh Let's throw James Genus in there. Why not? He's played on so many great records. Um, and there are actually some electric players that I like their walking as well, I got to say. Um, and, uh, oh, what about um, G- 
Gary, Gary Peacock. Um, man, now I'm no, sorry. Now I'm getting distracted. All these people. Um, wow. And it, like, it, just I mean, like the eight guys who play with miles. I mean, yeah, there's so many. Holy cow. I'm just sorry. I'm just getting so distracted by the amount of now I'm into saxophone players. Holy shit. So look, yeah see there you go that's why you write stuff down because you get old and (laughs) you don't remember so well and you need to go back and even remember the names literally of my handwriting in pencil writing down you know paul chambers uh bass lines i have to go back and remind myself who they were but that's the that's the level that you've got to get into it uh with you know and i think that's that's true for any instrument or any kind of style of playing that you want to that you want to transcribe and that you want to be fluent with um, is you've got to get into it from from the ground floor and really spend the time. Um, all right, going to get to a couple more of these because I know we're running around the hour mark right now. Um, here's one from Mark Wilmot. Hi Yannick, always love your insights. Do you have a oops, excuse me, a method for remembering chord sequences? For example, natural numbering, fretboard shapes, or plain learning them by by rote. I don't know that word. Um, no, I, it comes down to almost exactly the same thing I was just saying about um, knowing your history and knowing a bunch of different stuff. Like if you transcribe Paul Chambers on, let's see, uh, I'm trying to think of one that I did. Let's oh, let's <laughs> let's open the book and I just saw a Paul Chambers. Terence Blanchard, New, Lenny Tristano, Slam Stewart, Ron Carter, Paul Chambers. Oh, there you go. Um, Straight No Chaser. Well, it's a blues, but still, it's a good. Um, it's a good example of just. Tra- I've transcribed dozens of choruses of Paul Chambers playing a blues, for instance. I have one here. Straight No Chaser, live with Miles, nineteen fifty-eight. Um, and that, yeah, just when you do that over and over and over again, you cannot help but learn form uh, i think that's really what it boils down to it's the, like the chord changes yes like the oh my god i cannot believe i didn't remember mingus that's uh, that's a really i should get a really bad slap on a slap on a wrist slap in the face um yeah it's it's the chord sequences i think kind of bigger than that I, it's more about the form than anything um and once, especially as bass players, like we have the foundation, we're moving the harmony from one bar to the next. It feels like we're sort of part of the engine, the bass and the drums. But harmonically speaking, we have both rhythmic and harmonic power in terms of the motion of the rhythm section in jazz and in jazz harmony. So I feel we're at a, a distinct advantage in our fundamental process when it comes to form and when it comes to chord sequence and when it comes to hearing root motions. You'll hear a lot, um, you know, a lot of uh, horn players when they give clinics, or at least the ones I've been to, and they give lessons and masterclasses and, and what have you. They talk about root motion and hearing the root motion. And, and great horn players are themselves great rhythm section players. Whether that's literally, like you can find footage of Mike Brecker playing the drums, for instance. Um, my hey, my good friend, uh, uh, an ex roommate, in fact, back in the Boston days, Dana Stevens, um, 
one of the stars of the tenor saxophone today is a ridiculously uh, fat sounding upright bass player. Um, you got Warren Wolf who plays is a primarily a vibes player, but plays amazing bass, amazing piano and drums. Um, you got Christian McBride who plays trumpet. He goes the other way. He plays bass and he plays a horn instrument and a, a and piano as well. So yeah, you're going to find that most people have an understanding of being able to hear and an and instinct to hear uh, uh, root motion. And we have, as the uh, predominantly root players in the ensemble, in the form of jazz, um, we have a distinct advantage, I think, in the, in that process of learning. And um, learning chord changes really uh, it comes, I think, is the easy part. You know, once you hear two fives, like so much of jazz vocabulary and jazz repertoire is built up on two five one cadences. Um, obviously modal planes a little different and of course there are other lanes and other avenues other styles but the foundation of the american songbook of jazz standards is based around the five to one cadence the two five one and once you start hearing that and feeling that under your fingers um chord sequences you're going to be able to play songs that you've never actually played before but maybe you've heard and your instincts will kick in and you just go to the right set of changes because it's there are so many common threads of of root motion vocabulary when it comes to this music um so i hope that helps uh let's see how about talking about okay this is from the baker lou how about we make this the last one maybe this will make me do some playing as well by the looks of this question how about talking about left hand technique finger pressure thumb pressure and placement how to work around the inherent weakness between the second and third fingers i don't think it's a thing that's talked about enough i'm not sure there's an inherent weakness between the second and third fingers but definitely the third and fourth because they run on the same tendon right i hear that a lot like that's people's weakest um kind of weakest technical issue is independence between the third and fourth finger on the fretting hand so if i get my footstool here so i'm completely jacking up my posture in my back here and i can show you a little bit of that if you're watching here on youtube da, 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 da. Um, i would in terms of independence and basic technique. I love this string crossing thing. The string crossing being sort of one of the most uh, challenging things we face technically on the instrument. So that's just one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two across the instrument. Let's do it in all five strings. Why not? So one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, straight across the instrument. Then two, one. Back down again. So that's one, two. Then I do it two, three. And then three, four. And really, there should be no difference in technique or pressure or sound. Really, this is one of the times if I'm really working on the the micro elements of fundamental technique. This is one of those times where I want everything to be really the same and to have the ability to be. Uh, to be even in my playing and my sound and my technique because once I have that then I can go anywhere I want then I can manipulate it and go all over the place 
But if I don't have that basic foundation, I'm going to run into some trouble later on for sure. So... Just move up the neck to the next position, next set of four chromatic notes. Ah. I didn't do the lowest part of the instrument yet. It's a little more of a challenge. That's it. That's a that's a basic, um, it's a real simple one, and one of the oldest ones I have in my repertoire in terms of an exercise for specifically for left hand technique. Um, and there are thousands, I want to say, of different pressures you can apply with the left hand to get different sounds. And again, it all boils down to time, time spent with the instrument, time spent immersed in the process. Um, and you won't be able to get if you want to be good at whatever it is you have a question about, you cannot get away from the fact that you will need to spend significant amounts of time doing it. And I don't uh, say that to be discouraging. I don't say that uh, I don't want to be a dick about it at all. That is just a fact. It's maybe a fact that gets a little lost uh, these days. Uh, modern um, modern sort of uh, short attention span, you know, that is that is so prevalent these days uh, and what the internet what social media sort of promotes people to to have and and the kind of music they pursue and the instant gratification the long form the art of the long form and the will to uh to spend lots of time on on something very uh detailed is perhaps something that's a little bit of a dying art, but that's what it is. If you really want to achieve greatness with any of the things we've talked about, um, it's really about that. Uh, yes, I write books. Other people write books. People give lessons. That, there's tons of supplementary material that will that can help you as well. Um, my books, for instance, are guides to that. They are uh, a framework to help you maybe focus to give you some basics to give you the building blocks but the real work comes you know nobody else can do the work for you that's what i'm trying to say you can't buy experience and you can't buy credits of work <laughs> um like nobody else can do your homework for you you have to do that so as long as you love the process and you love the work which i'm very fortunate that i do it's it, it will all work out you just have to take the first step on the road towards the goal and that road is lined with uh, obstacles and those obstacles need to be overcome and to overcome them, it's always at the root of it all is immersion in the problem or immersion in the sound, immersion in the style twinned with hard work and you cannot go wrong with that. I I've, I've very much believe that um, in a big way. So bit of a long one today appreciate you guys hanging out hope you didn't get seasick if you're watching on uh, youtube with the new motion situation we'll see how much i like that when i'm looking back at it in the computer and uh hopefully 
if we get if we get up there we're over 600 subs on the on the podcast channel really appreciate that we're rocketing towards a thousand that's what we need to get monetized on this channel and start being able to reinvest some things into stuff like you know a second camera and um even a third mic for the podcast setup would be great. I'm toying with the idea of having two guests at a time and kind of hosting two people. Uh, that would be really fun. So it'd be nice to have another one of these SM7Bs. And uh, like I said before, I really want to try and make sure each thing is paying for itself rather than throwing money at, at it as a solution. You know, making do with what I have until the channel grows a little more and then reinvesting that money back into it to to make these productions way better. Same thing with the main channel. If you're not subscribed to the main channel yet and you're listening to this, please go and do that. That is a huge help, uh, especially as we're trying to hit the goal of 100,000 subscribers by the end of April and on towards a million and to big concerts all around the world and just bigger and better productions and being able to bring you live music uh, with my band and the, and the many incarnations that it is that it is going to see in the in the coming years, so that's all percolating happily away in the background here, and um, yeah, not getting a lot of sleep, but it's all for a great cause, and uh, I'm actually super happy for the first time in a long time, which is great. Uh, super happy about music and about what I'm doing with my life, work wise. So I appreciate you guys sticking around and hanging out with me. And uh, see you next week on the next one with uh, with my guest Marcus Reuter. Can't wait for this. Um, Going to be a fun interview in a couple of days. And uh, yeah, I'll pop that out a week from today. All right, take it easy.